Hey, look what we have found A big sound in a small town Far away from the bright lights They're making music every night Discover what is all around A big sound Because I just want to 
people to get a clue about how Scruggs style works because for so many people it's just a miracle and a mystery and how could it possibly happen? When I heard, first heard it, I said, that's one guy. Yeah, <laughs> that's geez. the first thing I said when I heard it. And then um, if somebody said, yeah, you'll learn to play this someday, I would have said, no, that's too hard. <laughs> but it, if you're determined, and that's that's what separates the successful banjo mm -hmm. players from the unsuccessful banjo players. you got to be determined because it's like climbing pretty stiff hill for a while but the, but I make it as easy as possible so the chords I just strum the open G chord once you learn how to tune an instrument and you can use a device now so if you have no ear you can still perfectly tune an instrument and then there's a C chord the first one was G and then here's a, a two finger D7 chord and you've heard the expression you know bluegrass or country music is three chords and the truth. Yeah. Well, I'm telling you the truth, and those were the three chords. <laughs> <laughs> so, now, so, so this is like Scruggs style real slow. Yeah. And all I'm doing is playing a thumb, index, thumb, middle. That's the fifth string. Those four notes. Yeah. How hard is that? Not too hard. That's how you learn one pattern, you learn to do it a little quickly. And then with the, your left hand, you make the chords, and that's enough to sound good right yeah, off the bat. Yeah. But you can do things that we use a, a new adjective called Scruggsy. This is the same pattern, but I'm just sliding along one string while I do the pattern. And this is part of Cripple Creek. Scruggs play Cripple Creek, he used that exact pattern, so you're right in, you're walking in his footsteps there. Well, a little bit of the time. Yeah. You know, most of the time, you know, you wonder how he could have made those footprints. But, um, but that's essentially the thing. So you learn a melody like... belaboring it those are the elements that you learn how to master a little at a time there's 365 days in a year if you do 20 minutes a day and multiply it by 365 that's quite a lot of time and you can just in your spare time while waiting for the TV commercials to be over you can be practicing your role with the sound off of the TV <laughs> and um, that I've done it a lot of people have done it and <clears throat> it's just easier than a lot of people realize and there's no percentage in making everybody think it's difficult to get really good is difficult I mean 
Michael Cleveland would amaze any classical musician. True. Uh, and he never read a note of music right. in his life. You know, same with Doc Watson. You know, it's it's the the some of it is just a, a gift, and some of it, it you work for it. Sure and then people call it a gift, but you work for you it. You do. It's pra practice. I mean, practice is very important. And practice doesn't happen without motivation. True. And motivation doesn't happen without an inkling of success. So the people who are having to learn modes and scales and all these irrelevant things. That is hard. I know. It's like pouring water on a fire. Yeah. The fire is already there, and if you add wood to it, you get a bigger fire. And my job or any teacher's job is to keep the motivation up because once somebody's motivated, you, you can't stop them. Right. They're going to just do it. But the when people have been in the closet four months, eight months, paying money to an instructor and not getting very far, that's when the flame dies out. Yeah. And, and I'm against that. I, I don't think tablature has a place in learning how to play music except like this role. I can write it in a piece of tablature about the size yeah, of a yeah. postage stamp. Yeah, exactly. <coughs> that's just the notes that you need to start playing. Right, to and begin that's with. a pattern. And then right. once you apply the pattern to chords, now you get you're in business and that's what I'll show them today sure. and unfortunately for a lot of them it, it'll be a revelation even the ones taking the lessons because the teachers aren't hip to this right so I'm trying to get the teachers hip to this but a lot of them say well I've had a hundred students and three of them went on to be in yeah. bands and okay it's possible yeah. it's just I'm trying to up the odds sure. for success by getting people into fun. And, and you can play at a pretty high level and never have to go out and play in a band. No, I mean, well, jamming. Jamming, yeah. jamming means you're imitating a band. Sure. And a band has to all face the same direction and hope they can hear everything, do what they rehearse. True. A jam is easier because you're all facing each other and seeing each other. And if everybody has to play slow, well, why not? You can go, someday we'll meet again, sweetheart. And it's still the same great song, you know. So uh, slow is not a bad thing. It's just where you start from. Just like when you <coughs> learn how to read, you know, start reading Shakespeare. <coughs> so that's what I do. And we have a little bit of time left if you want to talk about uh, the most dreadful event I've ever been part of. Yeah, can we do that? Yeah. All right. I know you wanted to hear a little bit about it, so uh, I was traveling with my wife and son. It so happened that my wife had just gotten over a fear of flying oh. that kept her not in a plane for 15 years, and she had beaten the fear, and now she's in a plane with me. It's a big DC-10 with 296 people on it, and the rear engine at a free engine explodes because of a manufacturer's defect that goes back to uh, 19 years before. The fan disc just broke and exploded the engine. The exploding engine severed all the hydraulic lines within the body of the plane and that's how you control the plane. So we had some very ingenious pilots, four of them, with Captain Al Haynes in charge and they were told by the ground, we can't help you, we don't know how to deal with it. So the people on the ground were assuming 296 people were about to die. But the pilots, they weren't giving up. And Al Haynes, who I became friends with later, you know, he went around the country talking about what, how they saved the day 
and they didn't really save the day because 112 people died, but 184 survived, including me and my wife and my then six-year-old son, who's 41 now. And uh, <coughs> so that was, uh, um, you could hear the engine explode, but the plane kept flying because it still had two engines in the wing, but they couldn't control it. But they figured out how to control it by using differential thrust on the two engines. And they didn't panic anybody because they didn't say, uh, it's, we're probably all going to die, right. which they knew was true, but they instead say, well, we're going to try for an emergency landing here because we lost one of the engines, and a lot of people, like myself, weren't worried that we were going to die. Right. Some people who had been listening on the, the channel you can listen on knew exactly what was happening and were assuming they were going to die. But I didn't know that, and, and uh, my son was asleep. I wasn't going to wake him up. My wife was um, staying calm because she had learned calmness from the problems having to do with fear of flying. And um, we had to get into the brace position, and I'm thinking, well, they say cushion your head with your hands, and I said, no, I'm not going to put my hands through that. I'll, uh, yeah, I, I sat in a different way. Yeah. And the, the woman next to me had been told to put her baby on the floor, and I said, no, he has his own seat. Let's just put him cushions all around him. And I, a few years ago, I met that grown-up kid who would have died had he been put on the mm -hmm. floor, as a lot of babies right. were and did die, unfortunately. Um, anyway, so then, you know, they said, be in the brace position now. Wow, contact is made. They didn't tell us that there was no way to slow up the plane, so we were going over 200 miles an hour. And amazingly, they got it to an airport at all. That was like a miracle in the, in the first place. They had a runway to try to land on. But they, didn't la they weren't completely level, so the plane overturned and broke into pieces. A lot of people died immediately, and it was a terrible and gory scene, which I didn't have to witness, thank goodness. I was in the center part of the plane, which was protected by its strong structure. And also, if you're going to be in a cartwheel, the place to be is in the middle. <laughs> so everybody in our section, virtually everybody survived and got out of the broken part of the plane. And next thing I know, I'm in a cornfield. I don't even know what state I'm in, but I'm surrounded by eight foot tall corn. And my son is on my shoulders. And he can see that there's a gathering of people down their way at the end of the cornfield. So we headed there. And from there, we were among the survivors. And then we found out we had been in a terrible plane crash, which until then we had no idea what was any of this was. But I remember when we stepped out of the plane, I thought people must have just died. And it turned out to be over 100 of them. And from that point on, it's another interesting story about how people treat you when you've been in a plane crash. Some people went and assumed I'm a very religious person because God saved my life. But I don't think a, a, a friendly God would have let people, people die, not just die, but go through right. gruesome. And, and a rabbi died, a lot of babies, a lot of mothers died. Anybody who could have prevented that and didn't would go to jail. Right. But so I ended up talking to Life magazine in this thread and then got in a certain amount of trouble in bluegrass <laughs> for denying the presence of a supreme right. being who's looking out after everybody. And I, I'm i not into saying that that much, but when people ask me about this, sure. I wanted people to know that 
I'm not thankful to a supreme being because I don't think there is one. I think there's a lot of miracles that we're all part of, including the human brain and just nature, but that's thanks to four billion years of evolution mm -hmm. in my mind. And it's okay if other people believe in God and if they sing great gospel songs, I'll sing them with them. Hmm. Uh, but I don't want to be known as a person who uh, thinks if it's a nice day, it's thanks to a supreme being uh, deciding to make a nice day for uh, a bunch of animals on a one of their zillions and billions of planets. Hmm. Uh, that's just something I like to point out once in a while if I get a chance. And it's okay if I don't get a chance, but when people ask about the crash, I especially was pained when somebody would come up to me and say, um, I guess the man upstairs wanted mm -hmm. you to live, because what if I'm sitting right next to a person and I met quite a few people who lost relatives right. on the plane. So that would mean so he, wanted them to he didn't care if they died, exactly. but he, he wanted to save me for some reason. And I, uh, that just irritated me. And I didn't want to say I was irritated because they were saying it as, as a friendly thing. Right. Um, but it, it really brought into clear focus uh, an anomaly that I've been aware of for a long time, which is the good stuff gets attributed to um, a supreme being, yeah. and the bad stuff is... Yeah, well, anyway, it doesn't make sense to me. If it makes sense to somebody else and they live a good life, hooray, that's great. Um, and I know plenty of people like that, naturally, including my wife, in fact. But um, anyway, so that's my reflections on that. And one little thing that's of interest, the, the guy who was in charge of the Sioux City Airport where this all happened was a banjo player. Oh, really? And he was studying with my video. And then he surveys the records the next day, and there's a really nice... Granada banjo line on the runway where the peg had busted off. And he says, that's a valuable banjo. I wonder whose that could be. And he found, found out it was the guy who's teaching him by way of video. So he tentatively, very cautiously, gets in touch with me, and I, I'm happy to hear from him. Um, uh, and he says, you know, he, we end up touring the airport later and found out, you know, my son actually found a piece of a plane that he now wears on a chain around his neck um, but Randy the guy in charge of the airport sent me a video that the National Guard took and it includes a lingering picture of my banjo on the runway with nothing else near it it had come out of the case it skidded along the runway obvious because the back of um, the resonators all sort of gouged out and then I had to get another neck and Gibson made, had made me another neck. And we, they, I sent it back to them by way of the same airline, and right. the airline sent it back to me with the new neck on it, and I'm playing it the next weekend. And um, uh, But I just went back to that video last week to have a blow-up photo made of that, the banjo on the runway, and I'm going to put it on my website. And people are interested in it. As you know, because we've discussed it, I wrote a whole song about that day. It's called A Day in 89. And it, it, it's sort of like a movie that plays in my head. Uh, and I share that movie with uh, the listeners. Yeah. And uh, I don't perform it. I've only performed it a few times because it's, sure. you know, it's a life and death song. And I'm, I'm not scared to do it, but I don't want to be a bummer. Uh, 
I did it a few times with the hot rods, and one of the guys said it's too much of a bummer to lay on the audience. And I disagreed, but because at least some of it is a happy ending, you know. But um, whenever I think of 112 people, it's just so sad. And, and Al Haynes was burdened by that for the whole rest of his life, uh, even though he saved the other people uh, by incredible. He, he's an aviation hero because what he did and with the, the co pilots has not been duplicated. They try to duplicate it on simulators and nobody's been able to do it. So I happened to be there and then I got the word to the pilots. They're all from Seattle. They all went to the hospital. They were all in the cockpit, which got crushed, but they all survived. And I was able to invite them all to do hot rods uh, nine months later, by which time they were all out of the hospital. And Al told me this is the first time any of them had met anybody from who had been on the plane. And you can imagine how I felt meeting the people who had saved my life. And um, I remain friends with Al um, for the rest of his life. And he came to hear Hot Rods a bunch of times. And um, that part of it's a happy ending. And the DC-10 got retired after that crash because it was the third time such things had happened. So at least in the United States, they don't fly them anymore, and airlines have an amazing safety record. It's about as safe as boiling an egg, literally. <laughs> I mean, that sounds preposterous, but it's true, because if, you, if you're careful enough, and not everything is careful enough, but if you are careful enough, you can prevent disasters. I mean, think of all the Christmas trees in houses that could be setting them all on fire. Yeah. And lightning is what causes most of the fires, not Christmas trees, you know. Anyway, I could go on and on, but uh, I'm going to be teaching sure. jamming in a little while, and I can't wait because well, it's so much I fun. I appreciate you taking the time out of your Sunday morning to do this. Well, talking with you, Sandy, in this nice environment with my banjo on my lap, I'm not complaining one bit. I'd be insane to think anything's wrong with this. Well, this <laughs> so I'm great. flattered by your attention and uh, glad to be able to talk well, to your I listeners. I like that you you were straight up with me. We um, it was it's, it's a great story, and I'm honored that you shared it. Uh, I'm sure you'll share this in many different ways, but I have a completely different audience that will hear, hear it. So yeah, well, I'm glad to share it, and they can go on my website, which is. Dr. Banjo, drbanjo.com. And if you look up Pete's song lyrics, you'll find the lyrics to my song, A Day in 89. Uh, and, you know, that's my view of the movie of that day uh, back, you know, now it's 34 years ago. I'll never forget any of that. And um, I'm really glad I got to live past being uh, oh, 43 oh, years old. One last question with that. Did it affect your banjo playing? Not a, not in the slightest. Uh, I uh, had some back problems thanks to that impact, but not enough to sure. keep me off the stage or anything. And uh, my hands were fine. That's and uh, I had a gig two days later. <laughs> so I went out on stage and I played. And everybody stands up and goes nuts because I'm there. And I'm thinking, what did I do? I just didn't die yeah, and yeah. so people come up to me and say I'm so glad you're alive and I go I'm so glad uh, you're alive <laughs> <laughs> let's just keep it that way if we can you know uh, sure. be careful on the roads that's where the dangers are sure again I thank you so much thank you Sandy
Thank you. 